Welcome to The Policy Shop, weekly conversations with public policy experts where we'll dive into the most important issues affecting all of us here in Illinois. I'm Hillary Gowans. Let's get started. Joining me today is Miley Smith, staff attorney and director of labor policy at the Illinois Policy Institute. The 2022 election is about so much more than the governor's race. Voters will be asked a question. Do we want to give more power to government union bosses or not? Miley's here to break down what's going on and why it matters to you. Miley, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, well, I love hearing your perspective on labor issues, and this is the biggest one facing Illinois voters in a long time. Uh, We're actually going to be able to vote on government union power at the, the ballot, right? Right, exactly. That's exactly right. It'll be on the ballot November 8th, 2022. And what I think is really interesting about this ballot fight, and we face this every time there's a question like this on the ballot, it's it's very much insider baseball until you get like a few months out from the election um, and people aren't necessarily paying attention, which, you know, who can blame you if, if you're not working in this space? You got a million things going on. But um I am looking forward to you explaining to people how this matters for them. This very much matters to to every Illinoisan's everyday life. Um, and and how would you in, explain that just in summary to get us started? What this amendment does, in a nutshell, is it hands power over to government union leaders. It doesn't hand power over to workers. It certainly takes power away from the taxpayers, it takes a say away from them and what happens. And at the end of the day, what it is going to do is drive up the cost of operating government. And what does that mean for the average taxpayer? It's gonna cost more to live here. I think what people have really been picking up on too is that it's not just the costing more, it's also the getting less. That's right. So what this will do is allow government union leaders to demand to negotiate over anything and everything when it comes to representing government employees. And those costs are passed on to the taxpayer in in property taxes, in other types of tax increases. We've already seen Governor Pritzker enact multiple tax increases in the short time he's been governor so far. And if, if we can't pay for the things that the unions demand, that means services will be downgraded. There will be things that our state and our local governments cannot provide to people or provide it in a subpar way in order to pay for the costs of these these collective bargaining agreements. All right. So backing up a little bit, this amendment, Amendment 1, is going to be on the ballot on November 8th in 2022. The way we saw um, union leaders, government union leaders talk about this when lawmakers ushered it through this past session was this is a right to work ban. All it's doing is codifying in the Constitution that Illinois can't have right to work, which seems like kind of a nothing Um, because there's already no right to work here. So there's already no right to work. So so also, like, why would you need this amendment if if we don't allow right to work as it is? There's no need for the amendment. 
But what I think is really interesting, and this happens all the time in politics, where there's a, a group of people who want something to pass through. It doesn't pass at first. And so they change it and they keep pushing and keep fighting. And maybe what ultimately ends up sailing through looks a little bit different. But what you've written about before is that Amendment 1 uh, lawmakers tried and failed to pass this a few times, and it looked a little different. So can you give us some of the context around this issue and how things have evolved? Yeah. So last session, two sessions ago, really, at this point in time, what the General Assembly considered was a constitutional amendment banning right to work. That was it. It didn't get through the General Assembly, so it didn't end up on our ballot. But then they changed it, like you said. They adjusted it. They didn't just adjust the wording of the initial amendment. They actually added provisions. And what we have now is something that is completely different than how it started. There are actually four provisions in this amendment. All of them would be the first of its kind in the nation. No other state does this. So the first provision is granting employees, which is not defined, a fundamental right to organize and bargain. No other state does that. Um, it also is because it's not defined, no one really knows who this applies to. It could apply to everyone. It could apply to lawmakers themselves, that they're employees of the state. They have a right now to unionize and bargain. The second provision is it allows negotiations over unlimited subjects. So those subjects that unions like Chicago Teachers Union like to throw into bargaining, um, like rent abatement issues or defunding the police, those may now be on the table and employers may have to bargain over them. The third provision, which is probably the most egregious, is that it prohibits lawmakers from ever pulling back on union power. So our lawmakers could never say, you know what, it's not good for the welfare of our citizens to allow government workers to strike. We're going to like pull back on that right to strike. They could never do that. They can never um, determine who is an employee for purposes of this amendment. Who does it apply to? Lawmakers can't decide that because they can't do anything that is perceived as inhibiting or pulling back on the right of these employees. Um, so it has, it will, if it is passed, hand over unprecedented power to government union leaders. Um, and then finally, at the very end, almost like it's thrown in as an afterthought, is a ban on right to work, which again, we have said that it's unnecessary to be in there. We already don't allow right to work but just like the other provisions, it would be the first of its kind in the nation. No other state bans right to work in its constitution. So if this thing couldn't pass as a right to work ban alone, why and how did it make its way through the legislature as a right to work ban and then some? First of all, I think that it flew under the radar in a lot of respects, because it was discussed as, oh, this is just a right to work ban. Um, I have heard that there were people on both sides of the aisle thinking that, oh, this is just kind of a, a compromise. And if, if I have actually heard this, like if we vote for this, then maybe they'll vote for some of our things later down the line, which is always a terrible way <laughs> to do government. Um, and I, I think that because it was so lengthy and the, the bottom line of it, you know, the last part of it was about right to work. It just kind of flew under the radar. Um, and 
and you know, the other side of that is you can't ignore what the government unions were doing behind the scenes. They understand that this isn't just about right to work. They understand that this is about increasing their power. They are very powerful lobbyists. Um, we we know that they give millions and millions of dollars to sitting lawmakers. And so they're very influential behind the scenes. So this is a union push for union leaders to have more power. They'll actually have more power than lawmakers because of that provision I mentioned. They will be able to put anything they want in contracts. They'll be able to walk out on strike if they don't get it. And um, lawmakers' hands will be tied because they won't be able to pull back on those rights. So I think there are a couple of thoughts that I've I've had, you know, float through my head on this issue too. Will government union bosses already have incredible power here in Illinois? So how does this change anything at all? And then the second thought that I have is uh, related to what you said earlier about this amendment giving union bosses, government union bosses, more power than our elected officials. And that so the second thought is, wow, what's the point of holding elections if the people we elect can't actually do what we elect them to go down to Springfield? That's so true. Well, to your first question, you know, why would we need this? That is an excellent point in and of itself. Like if they already, if government union leaders already have so much power, what does this amendment do? Well, my first response is we don't need it. Government workers don't need this. The government workers are already given so many rights and, and um, benefits through our state labor laws. So, you know, there is a question, well, why do we need this? Um, we don't. Workers don't need it. Um, What would change, though, is the power that government union leaders hold over lawmakers. So which gets to your second point. It does give them more power in that forever they will have this power. You know, as long as it's in state law, lawmakers can go in and fiddle with the Labor Relations Act and the Educational Labor Relations Act. But once it's in the Constitution, it's there. It's permanent. They have this right permanently. And, you know, as we were talking about giving lawmakers more power, it means like why, you know, I don't want to say this like seriously, but it's kind of like why vote? If your lawmaker can go in, I mean, it's democracy 101. Voters vote for lawmakers. Lawmakers pass or reject bills. And if voters don't like what they do, the voters can vote out their lawmakers. But now what we will have is turning that whole system on its head and lawmakers can enact or not certain bills. Um, Let's say they enact something government union leaders don't like what they will be allowed to do because of this amendment. It will be permanent. They will be able to go in and negotiate something different in a contract that overrides state law. And um, it, it really does, it takes away the ability, the authority of lawmakers, and it undermines voters and their say in government through electing leaders. A lot of the labor policy issues we talk about are really tricky to explain to people, and it's really especially tricky to explain how they these issues affect your everyday life. But I think that is the big one here for Amendment 1. Amendment 1 would essentially subvert our entire state democracy. 
It does. Exactly. And, and I think that's a hard concept because I, I already in our state law, many government union leaders can already override state law. That's that's in our state labor laws. When I tell people that even labor experts from other states, they're like, what? Your law says people of that, too, because that is crazy. And people are shocked by that. People ultimately are shocked when you explain to them that things like Amendment 1 already exist in Illinois, where the state gives more power to government unions than to voters or elected officials. Can you explain an example of how that already is happening? Yeah, I think that one of the best examples we have would be in the area of police reform. In the last couple of years, we have seen um, many groups and bipartisan groups pushing for reforms to ensure that what happens with police officers and potential misconduct is investigated appropriately and that discipline is handled appropriately. And there was a safety act that passed this year through our General Assembly that was seen as a criminal justice reform, as a police reform. There were many components of that bill. But let's say the police unions don't like what was in that safety act. Let's say there is a provision that inhibits them from bargaining over the way discipline is handled behind the scenes. What police unions can do is negotiate for a different provision. They could say, well, I don't like what's in state law. We are going to put our own disciplinary provisions in our contract. That actually trumps state law under our current state labor laws. So that means that a union can go in if they don't like, let's say, disciplinary policies that are in state law, ethics, codes that are in state law, the way that um, background checks are handled in public schools, they can go in and change that law through their contract. Their contract is more powerful than state law. That's, that's currently what's on the books. What makes Amendment 1 so dangerous um, for the people of Illinois is that that won't just be state law. That will be in our Constitution. And because lawmakers are prohibited from changing it, they will never be able to pull back on that. Our government union contracts will forever be able to override state law in Illinois, and that makes them more powerful than our lawmakers. So we, I was looking at um, a recent, well, it's, I guess a little dated now, but it was a, an edition of Politico Playbook. And what I noticed about it was this quote about Illinois as a national model. So J.B. Governor Pritzker's chief of staff told Playbook, I think there is a certain part of the Biden administration that looks in Illinois, at Illinois and says, here are a lot of things we'd like to accomplish that are getting done at the state level. And they're popular and successful. Um, and, and so the, the whole gist of this section of the Playbook newsletter was that, um, you know, it's it was funny to the author, Shia Kappas, that Illinois was a punching bag for Donald Trump. And now Biden has come in and is setting up Illinois as a model for how a democratic government can run. And thinking of Illinois as a model, I red, blue, purple, green, whatever you your politics are, I think it it's just really funny to think about Illinois as the role model for any government um, because and I I love Illinois as a place I love the people 
but you gotta be able to be real. Like the right. government here is dysfunctional. We have right. tons of problems. What does it mean to you that a very labor friendly president is talking about Illinois as his go-to? Right. It means that they're going to test things in Illinois first. And if they get it through Illinois, then they're going to seek to do that nationally through the federal government. There's actually a real example of that right now. A couple of years ago, Governor Pritzker, enact, he, he signed a bill that granted unions here in Illinois special information on all government employees that they represent, not just their members, all government employees. They can get their social security numbers. They can get their home addresses. They can get their personal emails and their personal cell phones. I mean, there's a very real privacy um, problem with that. Those unions can get that, even if you're not a member. That is now a part of, of a piece of federal legislation that the Biden administration is pushing. So it's a very real example of let's try it in Illinois, let's get it passed, and then let's take that nationally. I think that's what we will see with Amendment 1. Like I said, it is the first of its kind in the nation. It's the first to make organizing and bargaining a fundamental right. It's the first to um, allow negotiations over anything and everything. No other state constitution has this. It's the first to tie the hands of lawmakers and not allow them to limit union power. It's the first to ban right to work. They're trying it here first. They're going to try to pass it here. And then they're going to take that to other states and even perhaps, you know, federally to the extent that they can legislate those types of issues. So it's kind of a game of how much can we cut out the middleman here? <laughs> exactly. Right. How much can we hand over power to a special interest um, and and allow them to run the state? Cool. All right. Well, <laughs> not cool, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I just it's it's really it's really shocking. I, I'm not sure what to say to follow up on that, but it is really interesting that there are there's this movement to try a bunch of really extreme things here. Where else have you seen states trying to enact drastic pro-union policies like this? Are other states tinkering with this kind of stuff? Not in their state constitutions. So we do see the more like deep blue states like California, New York, those states Illinois tries to be like, um, they have enacted provisions that are very pro-government union leader. And I'm really careful to say pro-government union leader as opposed to just pro-government union, because it really does come down to what the leaders can get and the power they get. It's not necessarily good for the workers um, themselves. Like I said, even the, the private concerns in the bill that was passed in Illinois, um, you know, privacy, confidentiality, identification theft is a very real thing. And there are no like barriers to protect these workers um, when that information is passed back and forth between the government and the, the union. So, I mean, it's not good for workers either. Um, we have not seen this type of thing pushed in a state constitution. So while other states, very blue states have have pushed union leader friendly bills. We don't see this in state constitutions. In fact, 28 states don't even mention labor in their constitution. And only nine states total reference labor rights or provide labor rights. And in those six of them limit 
that power to some degree or specifically allow the legislature to enact laws um, related to labor. So there are only three states in the union that um, even mention labor rights with regard to um, granting those rights without restrictions. Um, and none of those three go to the extent that our amendment would. So one of the scenarios that you explained that Amendment 1 could open up is that government union bosses could essentially demand anything in collective bargaining agreements. Uh, and we see some kooky stuff in a lot of these negotiations come up. So, you know, pick your favorite union here. I know that CTU is like the obvious choice, but there are other government unions, uh, leaders, I should say, demanding stuff that just doesn't seem to have any place in a in a collective bargaining agreement. What is some of the kinds of stuff that you've seen thrown out there that had no chance before, but that could potentially pass through were Amendment 1 to take effect? Yeah, you know, this amendment is so broad. It talks about wages, hours, and working conditions, which that's already in our law, um, and then economic welfare and safety. So, Basically, you name it, it could be covered by one of these collective bargaining agreements. I know we, we do point to CTU a lot, and I know I mentioned rent abatement. Um, one thing that CTU has tried to force in the past is an agreement in, in the contract that the city government would push for certain legislative issues. So they're trying to dictate what the city government will then push in the state legislature. Um, they're trying to get an agreement on that. And that's that's kind of like a, a hard concept to grasp, but basically they're trying to dictate how the city lobbies in the state government. Um, you know, so we can expect more union demands if this passes. We can expect more labor strife. The more things they can demand and they have to negotiate over, the more there is to have to agree about. That opens the door to strikes. It opens the door to elongated contract negotiations. That in itself is costly. It costs money for a government unit to, unit to send a, a labor attorney into these negotiations. So that's going to cost taxpayers more money. It's going to draw these things out, draw out the potential for strikes, um, and all of that will increase our taxes. They will demand costly benefits, costly provisions in these contracts. And who's going, who's left to pay for that? That's the taxpayers. Um, and unless, like you mentioned earlier, we start gutting government programs that are necessary for people. So it's really not negotiating anymore. It's just like going into a, an annual review with your boss and he says, I can offer you a 2% raise. And instead you go in and say, actually, I'd like a $25,000 raise. <laughs> right. Nothing. Right. And I'm going to walk out and take everyone with me if you don't give it <laughs> to me and you are unable to, you know, that's the thing too, like with government units, there's a monopoly there that the unions have. They can't, they, if they take all the workers, there's no one else to provide the services. So, you know, whereas in the private sector, private context, you know, if I were to say that in my annual review, the employer can just be like, okay, we'll forget you. We'll find someone else to do your job. And government units can't do that. And, and taxpayers can't just decide they're going to go get their government services somewhere else either. Yep. All right. Well, there's a lot more to follow on this issue, and I'm really excited to see a lot of the research you have coming out over the next year. So thank you so much for joining us, Miley. I know that everyone's going to be really interested to see what shakes out here. Yeah. 
good to be here again. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To keep up with all of our work at the Illinois Policy Institute and to sign up for our newsletter, visit illinoispolicy.org. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Policy Shop.